Hey there, welcome to Marketing in the Raw. That's the podcast, and I am the host, Adam Helway. It is my goal here to expand how you define the practice of marketing and your vision of where it's headed, especially in a digitally connected world. Speaking of digitally connected, online there is no shortage of experts on just about any topic under the sun, but only a few make my personal shortlist. Rand Fishkin has been on my digital marketing shortlist for over a decade, and I'm super excited to talk with him during this episode. Rand Fishkin is the CEO and co-founder of SparkToro, and you may know him as the former co-founder and CEO of Moz, one of the top SEO software companies in the world, where he has also hosted his very popular Whiteboard Friday Talks. He's also the author of Lost in Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. I've been following Rand and his work for years, so getting this chance to talk with him, uh, man, I really hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. We talk a bit about the current state of search engine optimization and why there's some evidence that the signals Google says they do and do not use to rank your content is not entirely true. He tells me why he's a huge believer in episodic content, and then we dig into market research and audience intelligence with his new tool, SparkToro. I can't wait any longer. Let's talk with Rand Fishkin. Rand Fishkin, I'm so happy that you are talking with me. Um, you have been one of my trusted sources uh, around anything related to search for years and years and years. And that's a, a really small list when it comes to trusted sources on anything, because there's, there's uh, that's built over, I think, many years of, of good, uh, of, of a good record. And um, really, I think, um, sticking to your guns and being really transparent in, um, in, in the work that you do. Uh, how are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Even though, yeah, even though I'm not in search anymore, um, I think the last, yeah, the last couple of years of my career have been definitely the happiest since, you know, the early days of Moz and, um, yeah, building this new company, SparkToro is, uh, is great. Getting to chat with, uh, with folks like yourself, Adam is, uh, is terrific. And, and I have a lot more freedom to do things that that I want to do and that I think will be impactful uh, to my business now, which is yeah, that's been amazing. Yeah, I want to dive into all these things in in uh, in, in a little bit. I, I I wanted to start off, and it's just a little funny that it would be end up being sort of one of the first things that I would ask, but um, I found it interesting from sort of both a content marketing perspective and also because I, I was such a fan and I think so many fan, so many folks are such a fan of um, your whiteboard Fridays. Mm -hmm. I know this is sort of like out of the blue, but you, you did a whiteboard Friday video series, which ultimately had a counterpart blog associated blog post associated with each of those. And um, I was wondering like what inspired you to start that when you did? Yeah. Uh, so it was, Really, just an experiment. Uh, I think that I think that was 2007 was the first episode, and you know you can go back and watch the old ones, right? The the video camera quality is terrible. My presentations are not great. You know, some of there might be a few informational pieces in there that's potentially worthwhile, at least at the time. Most most of that stuff has changed now, but the um, yeah the polish was not there. You know, I had significant disfluencies in my speaking style. I wasn't a great communicator, but I... So you're saying I have some hope is what you're saying here with the podcast. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Sorry, I got off track there. No, no. But I, so I am, Adam, I am a huge, huge believer in episodic content. And I'm a huge believer in episodic content for, for many reasons, not just because of my Whiteboard Friday experience, but, but certainly the same things that I saw with Whiteboard Friday, I think many folks will see with their own investments in episodic content. And the, and the reason, podcasts are a great example, the reasons behind that are, one, you keep getting better right? You, you listen to previous podcasts and you say to yourself, ah, oh, I didn't like the way that intro went. Ah, oh, I didn't like the way that transition went. Oh, I need to, I wanted to dig in there more. And then when you interview the next person, right? When you, when you have a conversation with me, you're like, wait, I'm going to do that thing this time. This time I'm going to stop Rand in the middle of a sentence and I'm going to yeah. cut in and I'm going to, you know, make this really interesting for the listeners. 
and it and each episode gets better and better. And beautifully, with episodic content, as you're creating it and getting better and better, you're attracting more and more of an audience, right? Each time you push it out there, you know, a few more people subscribe, a few more people listen, a few more of the people who listen amplify it. The people who amplify it, you know, get some sharing going and then they come back. And if they love the podcast, they'll go check out previous episodes, right? So you've got this whole content library. It's a, it's a beautiful symbiotic uh, self-generating, you know, self-energy generating system. And I think a lot of marketers underestimate the power of episodic content. It's still really underinvested in compared to, you know, let's push out a bunch of blog posts with a bunch of keywords. And then did you, did you know it was gonna be episodic when you first started? <laughs> Certainly not the first time, but I think once we probably by episode three or four, you know, it was, it was, Hey, let's do this experiment. One time we put it on the blog. It didn't, it did not do well, but it, it, <laughs> the, the key thing that whiteboard Friday did was it meant I didn't have to write a blog post that night. Right? I can relate. And I, I can love totally that. Relate. I love the 15 minutes of filming and then somebody else makes the blog post. Oh, heaven, you know, it takes a burden off my shoulders. And so initially it was a um, piece of, you know, I felt this obligation to post something every day on the, on the Moz blog. I'd been doing that for gosh, years and years. I think from 2003 all the way up until probably 2009 or so I was posting, you know, five nights a week. And Whiteboard Friday sort of took one of those, gave me one of those days off. And I, I love that. So that was the initial impetus. And then it started getting some, um, the, the performance metrics didn't look great, but the engagement was really high, right? So it was that, not that, that, that those... That's what I was going to ask actually is like, how did you know at what point it was it was worth the, the, the effort that yeah. you were doing? I mean, obviously there was a load being taken off from having to do the blog post that you were talking about but but additionally there's still like somebody's got to do video editing the, the concepts you guys came up with and just let alone having that whiteboard prepped and, and ready to go the way that you did with a lot of the things that you were going to explain it takes effort and yeah. so at, w at what point did you know that was worth continuing i think probably mm, four or five months in we started to see that people who watched whiteboard friday uh, had a stronger brand association with Moz and with um, with me and with the video series than a blog post alone. And I think you know this is this is one of the other beautiful things about audio content, visual content, uh, video content, and uh, frankly, episodic content as a whole is that it creates a relationship between. Uh, viewer or listener or watcher and um, and audience that you don't get from purely written blog posts, right? Or or news articles or you know even long form studies, right? You I, I've I've put together stuff that has been a hundred times as much work as a Whiteboard Friday video, and um, you know has received a hundred times as many visits, but not nearly as many people remember that piece, have an association with that piece as they do with Whiteboard Friday, uh, because- Well, look, I'm asking you about it yeah, right Yeah, that's right, right? right? And, and, and you're asking me about it. People invite me to conferences and events to speak because of it, right? They, they have that recognition. I, when I go to a lot of conferences and events, you know, I get this weird thing where people are like, oh, will you sign this for me? Can we take a picture together, right? And that doesn't come because I wrote good blog posts that came because I did video and video has a connection that written text uh, doesn't create. Yeah, I think people, uh, both, both video and like you were saying, sort of the consistent I like to call it a, a backbeat, uh, where you've got a backbeat of, of of content, the episodic content or whatever it is, and and a backbeat of something like a blog post can can get so far. But doing like you said, video, you there's you can you can feel the 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 warmth or emotion or whatever else is going on. You get to see that person's face all the time, and and definitely get get an opportunity to know them yeah. gradually over the course of that. How did? How did the Moz team measure success? Like when it came to deciding, like 
wow, this is this is having an impact on the business in some way. Yeah, eventually, I mean, Moz in its early days was not very sophisticated. You know, I I don't. This is a very ironic statement, but one I've realized and I've tried to process how to. Uh, analyze this with SparkToro as well, right? Because I, I want to do it right with my next company. When Moz was growing quickly, right? When it when it had its best years of growth and sort of you know it was the it was the SEO tool, right? Before before um, twenty fourteen or so, twenty fifteen, right? When Ahrefs and and uh, SEMrush and those folks like started dominating the SEO tool space, Moz was you know, a clear number one, right? If you would ask a hundred SEOs, I don't know, 65 of them would have said, yeah, Moz is my tool of choice for, you know, a lot of years in there. And during that time, we were pretty terrible at measurement. Like we did not have sophisticated multi-channel or multi-touch attribution. Uh, we were not able to say which pieces of content someone consumed before they uh, eventually signed up. And if someone consumed a piece of content, would they stay a subscriber, you know, more or less yeah. time, all those kinds of things. We relied a ton on instinct and intuition and uh, just creating good stuff and relying on the fact that it would do well or not. And sort of our own uh, assessment of whether something was worthwhile. You know, we had metrics like visits <laughs> right, and page views and, and length of video watch and that kind of thing. But we, we, honestly, we barely even looked at them, right? Uh, it was only once um, things started turning, I don't want to say turning south, but started plateauing, right? Growth started plateauing. Things were getting harder and harder. We weren't getting, you know, as much good software out there. Our product um, execution, like I think Moz's, you know, biggest challenge was just that the engineering team could not produce things anymore. And I, I don't know what, I still have not figured out exactly what caused that, but um Right, product and engineering just slowed to a you know a trickle, and yeah. that um, when that as that happened, then a ton of effort from marketing was spent on hey, let's analyze what works and what doesn't, and then they had okay, Whiteboard Friday is the top performing post each week. At that point, they were able to assess it. They had this um, fairly sophisticated methodology that Doctor Doctor Pete uh, Pete Myers put together. And, um, you know, looked at how many touches of each piece of content someone had before they signed up and yep. which pieces of content that they had seen before they signed up uh, predicted a longer lifetime value in a subscription. So, they, you know, eventually, eventually Moz got good at that stuff, but it got good at that stuff at the same time that it, it kind of stopped, you know, it stopped being the leader in the field and growth kind of. Uh, plateaued. So I don't know, correlation, causation, I'm not sure. Well, and I, and I wonder, because sometimes in, 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 in my experience, you, if you're, if you don't know, if you don't have a measurement strategy, in at least an initial one in place, initially, you may not be able to go back and get the data that you needed in order to analyze, say, the last year or two right. years or three yeah. years or however long. Did you guys run into that in any way where you were like, uh, yeah, we couldn't go back um, as far as we wanted, but uh, you know, thanks to GA and um, some reasonable tagging, we, we could go back a, a good couple of years, right? It, it, it wasn't that it was impossible for us to do it previously. We just didn't bother. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't bother paying. Yeah, I, when things are good, when things yeah, are good. Yeah, when things are good, you know, the measurement is like, yeah, let's, the, we can worry about that later, right? Um, and, and so I honestly, I wonder quite a bit about the energy and effort spent there. And I wonder whether instead I should have been, uh, focusing all the team's time and attention, you know, and the, and the executive team that followed me should have been focusing all their time and attention on just how do we get product and engineering to quickly execute and launch new features and software rather than, Hey, well, we can't seem to get that going. Let's go look at, you know, what's impacting our growth. Mm -mm -mm. Well, so from your time at, at Moz, you, you you left Moz, I think it was, was it 17? Uh, 2018, yeah. 
2018. And you, you wrote a book, man, you wrote a book. And I really, I, I love the premise. I love the, the, the title lost and founder, a painfully honest field guide, a painfully honest field guide uh, to the, to the startup world. And I found it really interesting because in one of the first chapters, you sort of list and describe a bunch of things that you still do to fill your day since stepping down as the CEO of Moz. And amongst them, you said that you still run tests that Google wishes you wouldn't. <laughs> it, can you share with me an example of one of the tests that Google wishes you might not spend time doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, so when I wrote that, I think that was, I was probably writing that in 2016 or 17, right? Ah, uh, got it. And, um, the yeah the book came out in 2018 and sort of detailed a lot of my experience you know at Moz I uh, I ran you know a whole bunch of tests published most of the results I think probably the most um, hated test that I ran by both SE by by both Google and you know there's I, I'm sure you're familiar Adam there's sort of a subset of search marketers who I think in order to try and build up the idea that they have a positive relationship with Google. They try to be very subservient to all of Google's public representatives, right? And, and sort yeah. of, hey, whatever, you know, whatever this person who works for Google says, that must be the truth. And like, whatever this crazy Rand Fishkin guy who's doing this, going <laughs> this like he must be wrong. And then there's people in between who are kind of like, yeah, run your own tests, who knows, right? Um, yep. But uh, for, for, uh, in terms of my most hated test by both, you know, Google reps and the people who, um, you know, really, I don't know, follow them kind of religiously. Uh, they don't want to rock the, one, the boat. They don't want to rock the Google boat, right? Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, right? It almost feels like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. It's weird. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like a it's like a prisoner's dilemma, and they've turned into the prison snitches. I'm not sure. I can't I can't quite <laughs> um, come up with a perfect analogy. But uh, the yeah, the reality is right. Google for for forever has said that we don't use user and usage data signals directly in our ranking systems. Right? They they're, they're like no. You know, query you know queries clicks, click patterns, query patterns, pogo sticking, long clicks and short clicks, um, you know, all of these, all of these metrics, which Bing, of course, is like, yeah, of course we use that. That's what every search engine has to use. Google is like, no, we absolutely don't use it. Uh, so I ran, you know, numerous tests. I'd get on a stage, right, in whatever, Cleveland, and I'd be like, hey, everyone, you want to see uh, something cool about how Google works? All right, everybody search for uh, wedding planner Cleveland. You see that fourth result? Go ahead and click on that. You know, and then 20 minutes later, hey, uh, do that wedding planner search again. Hey, look at that. She's number one now. Oh, isn't that weird? So strange. Right. And, we, you know, I do those tests over and over again. Right. It, it's kind of a, just for fun. Right. And I, um, you know, show audiences because I put up the Google statement. Right. That they don't use this stuff. Right. And then sort of prove them wrong live on the sh on, on stage. It was fun. Right. It was, it was uh, you know, just kind of a good time. <laughs> Proving, proving Google is wrong. And I think it, you know, it excites audiences, right? Like they get, they get kind of into it. Uh, and so I published a few of those tests on the Moz blog at the time, a few on my own personal blog. Um, some people repeated them and published their own versions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there was a, you know, there's a whole ton of discussion about how people didn't believe that it work despite, you know, they were like, well, maybe, maybe it's just a random sample and it sort of got lucky or like after Rand, you know, shared it, somebody linked to it. And that's why it went up. Like, okay. It's pretty, pretty speculative there. Anyway, my favorite, uh, what was this last week, right? Last week, Sundar Pichai from Google was, uh, asked to testify before the United States house of representatives in Congress. Yep. And it, you know, it's a remote thing. It's over zoom because, Obviously, you know, the, um, uh, whatchamacallit, um, COVID situation, but, yeah. uh, nevertheless, right. The, um, the, the questions, some of the questions were pretty decent. Um, Pramila Jayapal, who's actually our representatives here in Seattle, uh, she asked some great questions, I thought. And then there were some, some really terrible questions from some other members of Congress, but, um, in as part of that, Google had to send a bunch of documents, like internal secret documents, 
uh, including emails, Adam, like emails between, you know, Sundar Pichai and, and uh, Bill Brocker and like all these, you know, higher ups um, at Google. And uh, one of those, one of those emails was uh, specifically, let me see, I'm going to see if I can find it and read it to you because it is amazing. Just amazing. I'll, I'll wait. I'm I'm interested. So it's you know the, the the they're asking questions that would lead might lead you in an antitrust sort of direction, right? That's the um, yeah, right. That's the the line of questioning. Like, has Google abused its power? Have they? Uh, they're obviously the monopoly in web search. There was a great article today about how Google uh, trains people who come uh, to work there that uh, they're not allowed to say things like market or market share. So when their salespeople like go talk about how you should buy ads on Google, they're supposed to say, we have strong user preference at Google. <laughs> Versus dominant market share. Yeah, right? we, we don't say that, right? We, don't, we, we get in trouble when we say that. Um, their economist, their chief economist from years ago, Hal Varian, apparently got in deep shit because I don't know if I can say that on your podcast, but but uh, got you in just deep did. trouble. It's 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 there now. <laughs> got in deep <laughs> trouble uh, inside Google because he publicly said, "Oh, it's really great that that uh, uh, what was it? Not the Department of Justice, the FTC at the time, who's investigating them under the Obama administration." Um, used Comscore's numbers because he because Halvarian said uh, Comscore's numbers are terrible. You know they show us as having like a sixty percent market share when we have a ninety percent market share. Yeah, <laughs> and, and of course got in big trouble for that. Um, oh, here we go. All right, uh, all those all those denials all those years. So this is in an email uh, between the executive team at Google in two thousand seven. Two thousand seven. We have many promising ranking initiatives underway for the coming year. Recent gains indicate there's significantly more possible on core rankings. Initiatives include continued investment in user signals like clicks. <laughs> I mean, just it's just right there, right there. Our search users create the first level of network effect for search quality, and we are investing in this heavily. Thank you. Thank you so much, right? I, you felt vindicated. You stood up when you saw that email and your hands got that rocky thing at the top of the I, steps going, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, like, I, I don't care anymore, right? It does, it does, what does it matter? It's it's sort of like, it's being proven right, I don't know, whatever it is, seven years after I did the first test to prove this. But it's still kind of nice, right? It's kind of nice to get the, oh, look. Google says that, right? And so next time a Google rep tells you like, oh, well, we don't uh, do that. You just, you just point him to this document that, uh, that Congress requested and you say, oh, <laughs> I see. So your executives lie in internal emails and to Congress. That's even more interesting. Well, yeah, I, I find it over, over all the years, I've, I've, always, I've had a number of, of folks say, yeah, to me, you know, it's usually, usually clients, right? To me, SEO is like black magic. I don't, I don't get it. And, and um, there's definitely a science and an art to it, but like you said, right? Like some of that, there, there's some of it that if, whether it's artificial, whether it's PR, whether it's protecting the algorithm, I, I, I don't know, but there is this, this um, protectiveness over sort of the whole truth around how a lot of these signals end up working. And that's, that's why I always appreciated what you and the Moz team would do. I mean, the, the whole like annual ranking factors, for sure. instance, yeah. uh, I knew that you guys were putting in work in order to pull that stuff together. And, uh, and even though Google wouldn't say as much, um, cause like, you know, I think, I don't even remember what the what the final verdict was on it, but they said like for instance, social didn't have any any play in it at all. And I think what I've seen is is some data to the contrary that says that you know social does. And you're smiling there, so the people listening, I mean, can't see that grin you got going on. Yeah, yeah, it is. Look, I, the thing that Google I think tries to do, Google's representatives try to do. I think they try to do two things, right? So I think when they say social isn't a direct signal. I, uh, they don't, they don't say it in that way, right? What they'll say is something like, we do not use Facebook shares, number of Facebook shares in our ranking system. Okay. All right. Number of Facebook shares. So you might use quality of Facebook shares. You might use, 
uh, speed of growth of Facebook shares, you might use, right? Like you can imagine all sorts of things being true and also the direct statement, we don't use number of Facebook shares also being true. So, you know, I think, and they play it that way all the time with all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think this is one of the beautiful things about getting it out of the SEO space and being able to do broader marketing is that I, I get some freedom from that, like, day-to-day push and pull, Google being secretive. Um, mm. and, and I also, I, you know, I do have some empathy, right? I understand why Google was secretive in their early days, right? It was for competitive reasons. They wanted to beat Microsoft and Ask Jeeves and, you know, uh, uh, Yahoo and all the other players. And later on, when they became the monopoly, they don't want documents that say we are investing in signals that give us network effects. Network effects is a, an antitrust monopoly term that suggests that a monopoly's uh, dominance is irreversible, right? It's, mm. They are too powerful and no competitor could win against them because of the network effects that they've built. So that sentence saying, let us invest more in user signals to achieve network effects thanks to our dominance, that is, you know, they are laying out the case for a regulator right there. So I can yeah. understand why they would tell their employees, don't talk about this shit. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and and I wondered before we sort of get on to uh, some of those other things that you were starting to allude to, with all the time, I mean, you've arguably had almost 20 years yeah. uh, on the books doing SEO stuff and paying attention to this, like you said, doing the experiments and, and, and all that. Um, do you think that the changes that Google ha has made uh, to their search experience and how publishers get found over all this time, do you think that it is moved in a, in a, in a positive direction for, for parties? Like the, 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 I mean, the things I'm thinking about are things like, you know, uh, snippets with position zero mobile first index, um, different updates and ranking factors that are sort of slightly shifting from a year to year basis. Um, and just all the various algorithm updates that people have always gone, Oh, it's now we got to deal with hummingbird and Panda and, you know, like, flying cheetah or whatever the, the next name is right or whatever so like just do, do you feel that they've moved in a direction that has i don't want to say made things more clear because i i think unfortunately that's that's something they always want to have as it feels like they always wanted to have it slightly nebulous in the sense that not only are they again protecting their ip a, a, a bit but they don't want people gaming the system sure right and, and so just i'm just your general thoughts on how it's evolved over the time that you've been in that space. Um, do you feel that, that it's moved in a positive direction or that they may have made things a little bit more convoluted or difficult or something than they needed to? I honestly, Adam, I think it's a mix, right? I feel like um, there are plenty of places where uh, Google has made really impressive, positive strides. A good example of this is something like uh, Google AMP, right? AMP. So AMP are these accelerated mobile pages. It's a, it's a platform that anyone can put their website on and, and get, you know, incredible speed gains, especially for slower sites. And, and years ago, it was just remarkable, right? And it's still really incredibly super important for folks, um, in countries that don't have fast Wi-Fi speeds, fast um, uh, mobile connection speeds, right? It's hugely valuable and important. But on the on the shitty end of it, right, on the crappy end of it, is is the fact that uh, Google has not made it an open platform where you and I, you know, for example, could start a website that's just as fast or faster than any AMP page, which we could, and we could get into the AMP system, and so we could have the you know the display boxes in Google News the same way AMP results get in there. Like Google has made their platform the exclusive way of getting into a bunch of different kinds of results. So you know, one step forward, one step back. It's it's frustrating, right? So I, I think I think in almost everything that they've done, right? They've improved the user experience of find of quickly finding. Uh, which actor was in which TV show, 
right? Like, you know, I type in whatever, uh, um, character name on show I like, and Google shows me not just that character, but like all the characters in the show and who they're played by, and they have all this information about, oh, when they were born, et cetera, et cetera. And they extracted that from people who did the hard work of actually assembling that data and putting it online, right? Yeah. They've, they, their, their machines have basically used um, human content creator labor for free and provide no return to the people who made that content. That, because folks are not clicking through yeah. to, to, to see that content. If they are and, clicking yeah. through, they're now clicking through from one Google property into another Google property, right? And it's it's just Google all the way through. And then we'll take you to YouTube and we'll, oh, do you want to buy this on Google Play? And hey, would you, <laughs> right? Hey, would you like to check out, you know, our Google movie database and blah, 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 right? So like all these, um, I think that stuff is, for many users, very convenient. Uh, and for content creators and people who would contribute to the web, it is a strong disincentive to want to do that in the future, right? Like, I, I think the reality is that the internet as we know it would not have grown up in this way, right? Would not have attracted so much attention and opportunity and content creation if Google had sucked all the oxygen out of the air for content creators in so many of these sectors, right? And so that that is pretty infuriating. Um, I think I think a lot of people look at it and go, well, Google only cares about the user. And my response is, that sounds wrong to me. Right. Like, I don't know why that's a defense. How are you making that a defense point? Like that, that should be a criticism, not a, here's how I defend Google. Yeah. Well, so this may be slightly related here, but considering, again, we talked about how long you've been, you were in the SEO space. Now you've moved in in, and launched a company called SparkToro. And that's, and, and those who aren't familiar with it might initially go, oh, it must be a search related, you know, uh, and I'm sure there's, there's very yeah, slight threads to that. Mm-hmm. Right. But, but for the most part, like I was, I was wondering, you, you made this transition out of Moz, you were in, you're, you're in SEO and it's so deep that you, again, I consider you a top expert. Most fo- a lot of folks would put you on that top list, right. Uh, top three MCs in the SEO world ran would be up there. And, uh, and, and so there was all this institutional knowledge that you built up from the work that you did with Moz, from your own work that you've done from the conversations you have. I find that when I'm having conversations with folks and they're asking me their questions and mm-hmm. it's making me dig into things that I might not have realized there's so much that was built up there, but then you made this move to something that was, Sure, it's still in the marketing space. It's it's still uh, a, a, a software, yeah. uh, right? A software tool, but it's it's different. What what was the impetus that made you decide? You know what? I, I, the next, my next step of my journey here is not going to be in in search in, in SEO related stuff. Yeah, I mean, w- one big thing is that I definitely wanted to um, break free of the sort of you know, what I'd been doing for the last 17 years around SEO and Google. Um, I, I still find that field really interesting. I still, you know, obviously pay some attention to it, but it's a, um, it's a field that in my opinion is, uh, plateauing, not because fewer people are entering it, but because Google has essentially decided that their growth is going to come from taking market opportunity away from content creators, publishers, marketers. Uh, I don't love that, right? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's, that's great long-term. And also, uh, when I left Moz, I had a non-compete, so I could not, you know, go into SEO software, do those kinds of things. Uh, And, um, I really, really passionately wanted to help marketers break out of the idea that Google and Facebook are the only places to do marketing. And unfortunately, you know, if you look at where dollars are spent in marketing and advertising today, it is 70, 80% plus Google and Facebook. Um, You know, they just control the overwhelming majority of our time and effort 
And I don't think that's right. Like, in my opinion, Adam, there are thousands and millions of places to potentially do marketing on the web that many marketers ignore because they're not easily accessible and you don't know if they actually reach your customers, right? You know, when someone types in whatever, um, you know, particular uh, kind of electrical engineering equipment that probably electrical engineers are searching for that term and they need it for their work. And so, you know, ranking in those top results can be really helpful and useful and you've got that piece of equipment or machinery, whatever. Sure. Fine. Right. And you know, they're probably on Facebook. And so you might be able to target them by the groups that they're in. But electrical engineers also read a bunch of trade publications. They also go to a bunch of conferences and events. They also listen to podcasts. They also subscribe to YouTube channels. They also have a bunch of niche websites they're visiting. They follow people on social media. But Google and Facebook don't tell you what that information is, right? It, that's really hard to get at. It's not really their job either, right? And, and getting that information is ludicrously hard today, right? Like if you want to do market research to figure out what electrical engineers in the United States are reading, watching, listening to, what, what do you do? You, you survey them, you interview them, you break into all their houses and steal their phones and get their passwords, <laughs> right? Like that's, pragmatically, that's the best way to do it, right? The best way to do it is, is like, I go to your house, I take your phone, I log in and I look at what you subscribe to, right? And I do that for a thousand more people. And what's crazy is, you can get that information right online, right? So, so this is what inspired uh, Casey, my co-founder, and I to like really want to go after the Spark Toro idea, is we were like, my God, that all that information is online. Like thousands of electrical engineers and thousands of every kind of you know human being have have public. So Spark Toro is not when you say Spark, it, it's not specifically electrical engineers. It's That's not, not no. what it is. <laughs> You're the first person. You're the first person to go that direction. That's I love it. I love it. Um, yeah, right. So, like interior designers in Los Angeles, or or um, you know astronomers in Canada, or people who play the game Dungeons and Dragons. Like we we you know we can get all of this information because people put that information publicly online in their public social and web profiles. And we can essentially crawl it. If we crawl it in the right way and index it in the right way and make it searchable in the right way, you can get that data in seconds instead of months. Uh, you can get it way more accurately. And you know you won't get the breaking and entering charge for stealing their phone. So that's what, that's what, that, that's what inspired us to do SparkToro. That, that's awesome. And, and we just became a SparkToro customer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and and so and, we uh, haven't had a chance to Ray, kick this. Raymond, right? Uh, Ramon, Ramon, yeah, Ramon. yeah, 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 and uh, don't worry, the way he spells it, everybody mm. says Raymond at first. Uh, he's used to it by now. Um, yeah, so we became customers. We haven't had a chance to thoroughly kick the tires, but we love the idea. We love what, what we're what we're what we're seeing so far. Um, and you you've already sort of unpacked like the inspiration for it and a little bit about what it does, like in the simplest terms what problem were you trying to, to, to solve for folks? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the short, short version is SparkToro helps you instantly discover the sources of influence your audience pays attention to. The websites they visit, the podcasts they listen to, the YouTube channels they subscribe to, the social accounts they follow, the words and phrases they use online, uh, the hashtags they use. And so, yeah, lots of... Um, I, actually, not surprisingly, right? A lot of folks like your, yourself and uh, Ramon uh, subscribe because they use it for their agency, you know, for their clients' research, right? They, so they can, you can walk into a pitch meeting and say, like, "Hey, he, we looked at the customer targets that you have, and we can tell you what they pay attention to, and because we know what they pay attention to." We know that getting amplified in these spaces, right? Doing some press or PR, pitching these podcasts to get on them, sponsoring these YouTube channels, maybe doing a little influencer marketing, maybe doing a guest editorial. It might help us with SEO and ranking. It's also going to help us with customer awareness and brand marketing yeah. and growing our business and getting direct traffic from these sources that frankly, not a lot of marketers are paying attention to. Because not a lot of marketers are paying attention to them, the return on investment is high, right? Like yeah, you and I yeah. know from years of work in SEO, anytime competition is low, returns tend to be higher.
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and you, you talk about a number of different use cases for like SEO is one of those use cases sure, as well yeah. as a handful of other ones. What has uh, been your sort of favorite use case person? Like the one where you, as the co-founder, you're like, I just really love this, this, this trick that I can do here with Sparturo. Um, one of the things that I, that I, I love to death is a lot of content creators uh, who have guests and, and I, I'm going to say guests. So that could be a podcast that has guests they invite. It could be a YouTube channel host who's doing interviews. It could be, um, we had a, uh, um, a television studio production studio that whose, mm -hmm. uh, team was looking for sort of the right experts in spaces to go reach out to for their, uh, production. I think it was like mostly documentaries or maybe, um, yeah, something something in that world. It might have been reality TV. I'm not entirely sure. But the, uh, and then event planners, right? People who run conferences and webinars and offline events. All of those people are trying to find who are the individuals that are most followed and paid attention to by my audience, right? Because, for example, Adam, right? Like you might say, hey, uh, I want to attract a bunch of whatever listeners who are in-house marketers at uh, firms that are doing SEO to listen to, you know, my podcast, because if I can get the secret sushi right name in front of a bunch of people, like that'll be awesome. Sweet. Well, Spark Toro has helped a bunch of people do that. That's one of my favorite use cases, right? Um, we saw it. The, our, the first person who tested it was Moz's old event manager who ran MozCon, Charlene, uh, Kate, and she started her own events business um, after Moz and has helped a ton of folks in all sorts of industries, but she does event planning. And she was like, hey, Randon Casey, guess what I'm using SparkToro to do? And that, that I, think, I think the combination of the fact that it was her doing it and the fact that um, it was this creative use case had me like, whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> well, that's what happens, right? When you put things out in the wild, and then suddenly folks start using it. You, you, you think you're so smart, Rand, and you know all the scenarios. You put it on your website, and then suddenly everybody else starts using it and showing you all the additional creative, you know, things that it can do. Yeah. I, um, I was uh, yesterday. I haven't heard back from them yet, but um, yesterday, a Japanese pharmaceutical company signed up for like the highest tier annual subscription. Huh? And I went, you know, I went and I was like, man, what? what are they doing? I went to their website and looked, it was like, they were started in the 19th century, you know, in, in like uh, Osaka. And I, I'm looking at the site and I'm just trying, trying to figure out like, what are these marketers doing? They were clearly obsessed with SparkToro. Like they think it's super amazing. And so, um, yeah, there's really creative use cases out there. Well, I want to go back to your book a little bit. Yeah. Um, so also in, in Lost and Founder, you you said that one of the hardest things for you to do personally, I'm going to get a little personal here. One of the th hardest things for you to do personally has been to do your best not to beat yourself up for the mistakes of the past. Oh, yeah. And on a personal level, I can totally relate to that statement it, it, it is is really I mean, there were there were a number of other things wrapped wrapped in in there, but is is the book really kind of a product of those feelings yeah. and trying to sort of like unpack process and share some of those personal experiences in a way so that other businesses, entre entrepreneurs and so on can, can take it in a constructive way and, and put it into action. So they may not make, they'll make their own mistakes, but they won't be making those mistakes, right. That, uh, that you feel you wish you would have had a, a little bit more, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to say wisdom per se, but that you you might have had a little bit of forewarning or, yeah. or, or had some book like this to help you with. Um, yeah, man, that's that's heavy stuff. But that is, you you have nailed it, right? Like you have nailed exactly the motivation for the book. Part part of it um, was therapeutic, right? Self self therapy of of sort of telling your own story. And uh, my editor Nikki at um, at Penguin uh, Random House did did a really nice job of sort of pulling out a lot of the stuff that was purely cathartic and leaving in the stuff that would be valuable for other people. Um, but even mm -hmm. that, you know, even that process of writing, it was very, uh, 
was very cathartic, right? It was, it was, it's powerful to sort of tell a painful story out loud, to write it down in a structured way, to analyze what happened and why it happened, to go back, you know, in my case, I was digging through, I don't have a great short, uh, long-term memory. And so I was digging through all my emails, right? From 15, 20 years, uh, 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 17 years at Moz. And, um, in, in many cases, kind of relearning why we had made these poor decisions and what had led to uh, these challenges and also what had led to success, right? Like, what, what, you know, what was it that made Whiteboard Friday work so well? What was it that made Moz the leader in SEO software for, you know, all these years? And how did it lose the thread there? All, I think all of those things are really, really interesting. And um, the, yeah, the reality is that it is still very difficult for me not to beat myself up for past mistakes. Like, I don't, you know, I don't know how you are, Adam, but like, I have this, this sort of sense of, I, I feel like I have removed many of the elements of whatever, what, what's, what's often referred to as like, toxic masculinity in America. Like I try, I try really hard not to have those things, but I think one that's stuck with me that I've never been able to break out of is this sense of personal responsibility for everything. Like I, mm. you know, I, as a man am responsible for everything that happens, you know, around my life. And if things didn't go well, it's because I didn't do well enough, right? That self blame, even though I never do that to other people. I, I like I never I never you know point to someone and say you are exclusively responsible for everything about your situation. Like I, I'm a marketer, so I'm a systems thinker. So I know that you change things on a web page and your conversion rate goes up or down. Obviously, right? Obviously, from that experience, the only thing you can take away is people's actions are influenced strongly by their environment and their incentives. And yet, for some reason, I can't, I can't like internally process that for myself. So, I mean, again, I, I definitely can relate. I would say that besides being a marketer, you're a human, right? And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's one element. And then, and then in addition to it, besides being a man, because I get, I get how that, that there's that, there's that tricky thing, yeah. right? When you start saying things like that, but you're all, you're also a leader, yeah. which, which transcends any of that. Right. Sure. And so in both of those cases, as a, as a, as a man who, or as a, excuse me, as a human who was in a position to be a leader, things happen, you, you're trying to do your best to stick to your values. And in many cases, the, the best that you could hope for is to, um, to reflect on what happened. And as you move forward, learn from those things and say, okay, my, my intention wasn't for that to be so right. screwed up, or my intention wasn't for that mistake to, 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 you know, to, uh, to, to, to happen. Uh, and so moving forward, now you've got that, um, you know, that, that wisdom. And, and I think that the, the purpose of the book, like you said, is, is so important because there's been a number of things that have happened in my life where I looked at it and I said, man, this feels so crappy right yeah. now. Uh, I mean, my, my one of the examples, my when my father, my father had an aneurysm and passed away. Oh. And him being in a coma for a period of time, I just remember the feeling of, wow, this happens to families all over the place. This happens to people all the time, whether it be that or COVID or yeah. whatever the case may be. And it's a stressful time. It's a it's a time where you, you're you're trying to make decisions for family members and all this other stuff. God, I really wish I could bottle this up and hand this off to somebody so that they could understand how things sort of evolve over time and how the stress you're having right now will evolve and change. But but life moves on in some shape or form, even with whatever, like you're describing, sort of a little bit of pain, a little bit of frustration, whatever the case may produce in that in that period of time. And so I really uh, found your book to be a very similar thing. I mean, just looking in the first few chapters and hearing um, you, your, you, you said a lot of the stuff was taken out, but there's still things in there that you're just sort of admitting like, wow, like things aren't weren't always, you know, uh, 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 peaches and cream. No. And even in talking about how long it took for you to get to a point where people kind of look at you and say, 
Rand is, 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 is a, is a leader in our field and a leader in industry. You're like, well, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time and here's, here's all the warts right here. Um, Yeah. I really dislike those entrepreneurial experiences that are just like, I'm amazing. And you can be too. If you follow my seven step plan, right? Like that, that, that shit pisses me off. I I really, cause I, I, you know, right. If you, if you have a private conversation with that entrepreneur, I don't care who it is, right? Like, or how successful they are. If you have a private conversation one-on-one and they're being real with you, they will tell you about all the ugly missteps and nastiness behind the stage and, you know, um, and, and that behind the scenes, none of this is easy or simple or straightforward. And that these rules that they've put out there, you know, it's a, it's a rough structure and it doesn't work for everybody. And then the book, and the stage presence and the interviews are a whole different thing. I, I really dislike that um, sort of, it feels a little dishonest to me. Well, I think in wrapping up that part of the, the discussion on the book, one of the ways that you frame it there is, hey, this is the way that that it it looks from a optics perspective the silicon valley is this way doing yeah. uh, doing um, uh running a company as a ceo getting vc money all these things that were related to sure you're talking about other elements as well but you're talking it's lost and founder it's 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 about you as a human being getting into sort of i, I love the title of of one of the sections what is it oops i oops i startup or what, what was it uh, oops i a startup yeah oops, is that I accidentally a startup <laughs> That's what it was. Yeah. And, 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 and so uh, I, I love, but you, what you did is you framed it as I'm not necessarily like giving you a big roadmap here. What I'm telling you is these are the things that I thought were this way 15 or 17 years ago. Yeah. And then I found out they weren't that way. So let me just tell you that they're not that way. Uh, so that that way you don't have to worry about trying to to be something you're not, or to take a, a path that you decide because it isn't paved in a particular way with these rules that are, that are, that are fixed. That's what I got out of it. Oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah. That's, I mean, obviously trying to aim for a lot of that stuff. So thrilled to hear that it landed. So last most important question, this is going to like, just totally put you on the spot here. So I love how in the book you describe your you describe the concept of the book in some ways in a lighthearted way as a cheat code, as a game cheat code. Yeah. Are, are you a video game fan at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. So this is going to be spot on here and ask you. So I'm a huge video game fan. I, I thankfully um, don't have as much time to play video <laughs> games. I said, thankfully, because if not, I'll just be, you know, mindlessly over there playing Street Fighter or whatever else is going on now these days. Um, but uh, what was your favorite cheat code growing up? What was the one that was like the most memorable, like most incredible cheat code that's just... Ooh. iconic to you in the games that you love to play? I mean, the, the Konami code is obviously, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the OG that everybody knows. But um, I loved, gosh, what was it? It was in, I think it was in the first, um, the first release of Final Fantasy VII there was a, which was like the first Final Fantasy that got big, you know, on the Nintendo, like the old Nintendo system that I had as a kid. And uh, I remember that I, you could, if you were like, if you were in the middle of losing a battle, like you you were going to, you know, the monsters were going to beat your characters. Uh, you could um, shut off your system and then uh, turn it back on and the the battle would be like completed (laughs) because like because of how the save system works i i think that was the one it was either that or you start it you know you press pause and you exit it out of the system and then you like reloaded the game and you'd have you'd have beat the monsters it was kind of a cheat because you did i think you didn't get the uh like you didn't get the treasure and the experience from beating them but could still could still sort of end around that was uh, that that's was a real. A, that's, a, that's a deep cut, man. Yeah, that was a, a lifesaver once in a while. This is I had to, this is exactly the kind of cheat code that you have for the companies too, right? Like Spark Toro is two people. It's just me and Casey. 
because one of the things I hated about building uh, a company at a bigger scale was the politics that happen internally around having a larger team. And so we have cheat coded by essentially outsourcing everything. Everyone, everything, everyone who's doing work for, for SparkToro is, a, you know, consultant. We, we use a bunch of agencies for stuff. We use an external designer, external art director, external video person, external, uh, um, we have someone who's helping with, with some of our crawl data. Now we have someone who's helping with, um, our uh, conversion rate optimization to like just all these people and they're all experts in their field, right? There are people like you who know exactly what the hell you're doing and you do it all day, every day. And you've seen a ton of companies do this. Oh, you don't know me, Rand. You don't know me at all. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like this is one of the things that I experienced in my career with, with consultants and agencies. I was like, Oh, they, they are pinpoint, accurate on identifying problems and solving them because that's all they do every day, right? They've seen it in yeah. a ton of companies. One of the problems with doing it yourself internally is that you only have your one experience, right? So yeah, there you go. Which is, which is, which is often the case why folks work with an agency like ours, because being in a one company, you're like, I'm trying to solve the problem for this SaaS company doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then they bring in an agency and they go, oh, well, that agency is like working with 10 different types of companies that have so many varied experiences. They can bring a lot more institutional knowledge exactly. uh, to directly to your market. Exactly. Marketing. Like so. the, the problems are not new to you, right? So, you know, instead of instead of like fighting those monsters 10 times and losing, eh, you know, you just sort of you exit out of the system and go back in and the monster's defeated and you end around. <laughs> there you go. Boom. Problem so now you, we're just doing speed runs. Yeah, is what we're you're doing, doing from speed now on. runs. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I did love the Super Mario Brothers. What was that? Level one, two. You know, if you jump on top of the, uh, I don't, I don't know if you remember. Like was it over the flagpole? It's the first underground level. So you beat the first level of Super. Oh Mario yeah, Brothers. you you break the bricks above you, you and then you jump the up there above, and then you run and you across. You go up top and then you can warp to like, you know, near the end of the game if you want to. That was always so, so. So I'm going to run. I had to do a little research to remind myself of some of those old school ones. The economy code is definitely number one all the way around. Yeah. There was the. Do you remember on Super Mario Brothers one the infinite life hack with the turtle on the on the stairs where you could just Ooh, bounce and bounce right, and bounce it just, and eventually it just keeps going back and forth and so you could yeah yep. you could jump on top of it because you get a one up every time. Like what was it? Every eventually time it would go like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, and then, uh, and then there's the, the home console Mortal Kombat where you, they, they didn't want to have blood in it because it was such a big deal. But then there was a code to make the blood suddenly appear when you're playing the game. Uh, and then there's also the NBA Jam big head code where they'd all have these like enormous heads playing basketball. Oh, yeah. That's was that, that was like the that, NBA Jam was that like back when it was Charles Barkley and like, Jordan oh, yeah. and all those guys, yeah, yeah. This was uh, like late, late nineties, I think, yeah, or something I remember that. that. And everybody so, was like, "Well, why would I play any team but the Chicago Bulls?" Obviously, you're gonna, be, everybody's gonna be the Bulls. You're like, I got Pippen and I got and I got Jordan. That's it, yeah. right? <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, well, sir, where can people uh, continue to to follow you? I, I really, um, I, I really, uh, what do you say? encourage folks to, to, to check out what you've got going on and, oh, thanks, and, yeah. in all shapes and formats, uh, where, where can they go and, and, uh, keep abreast of what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if you go to sparktoro.com, anyone can sign up for a, uh, free account, get 10, 10 free searches a month. Um, and if you want to, uh, follow me and see what I'm sort of writing about and sharing, I am most active on Twitter where I'm at Randfish. At rat Rand Fish, not Rand Fish, but Rand Fish. Mm -hmm. Awesome, sir. Uh, I got to tell you again. Always been a fan. Uh, now more than ever, uh, you're my type of peeps. I super appreciate you uh, coming on and and talking with me. Right back at you. Thank you for having me, Adam. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to Marketing in the Raw. We love, we love, we love that you spent time with us. There's so many other podcasts out there and things to do in general and you spent it with us. If there was one favor that I could ask of you, it would be that you subscribe to this podcast. And if you've already done that, then if you could rate and review the podcast wherever 
you listen to it, wherever you downloaded and subscribed to it, that would be incredible, incredible. It helps other folks find the show. And uh, lastly, if you've done both of those things already, if you could share this episode with somebody that would find it useful, the topics in this uh, would help them out. It would uh, make their day. It would pique their interest, something like that. It would be awesome if you could go ahead and share this with them. And uh, last but not least, if you just want to connect, you have questions about anything in the show, you want to send me an interview a potential person to talk to or idea, uh, or uh, you want to talk about digital marketing, go ahead and email me at adam at secretsushi.com or just visit secretsushi.com. Until next time, thank you. Take care.